السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه يجمعين أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وسلم تسليما Respected ulama, guests, and students, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We are gathered here once again for the completion of Sahih al-Bukhari and the reading of the final hadith of the book and also to mark the graduation of a number of students who have completed seven years of very intensive study of Arabic and the related sciences of Arabic, such as grammar, morphology, nahw sarf, even some aspects of Arabic literature, and moving on to fiqh and even Qur'an, tafsir and hadith. One of the reasons why this graduation ceremony, not just here but all over the world, is called the Bukhari graduation, even though it's not the only book of hadith they've studied. Because even apart from the books of tafsir and fiqh, when it comes to hadith, they study many books of hadith, many small collections of medium-sized collections, larger collections, and then the original major works. And even in the final two years, Bukhari is just one of six major books of hadith, which you're all familiar with. Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Abu Dawud, Nasi, Ibn Majah. And then even before that, they study Sharh Ma'an al-Athar, Mishkat al-Musabih, Riyadh al-Salihin, etc., so why do we call it the Bukhari graduation ceremony or the Khatm of Bukhari? It's symbolic. And the reason is that after the Holy Qur'an, all of the branches of learning, all of the sciences, are secondary to the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So first comes the kalam of Allah, the speech of Allah, the Holy Qur'an. And then this is followed by the kalam of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the speech of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that's embodied in the collections of hadith. And there are many collections. But of all of these collections, the most prestigious, the most authentic, the most rigorously edited, and without doubt the most noble and the most universally acknowledged, appreciated, and in fact revered collection is that of Imam Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari. So what made his work and his collection so great that even children now know the phrase that the most authentic book after the book of Allah is Sahih al-Bukhari? <clears throat> there were many reasons, but most of them rest with the author himself, Imam Bukhari. His sacrifice, his efforts, his devotion, his undertaking, the suffering which he endured in the path of learning and conveying the words of Rasulullah his own piety, 
his genius. All of these things, many more, collectively, elevated his collection over all other collections. He was revered in his own time, and that position has been cemented and has continued to endure all these centuries till today. So the reason we call it the Khatm of Bukhari is not that we are marking or commemorating only the completion of Sahih al-Bukhari. Rather, we are marking the culmination of seven years of study with the final recitation of one hadith which comes right at the end of the greatest book of hadith. So it's symbolic, it's exemplary, it's representative of the overall hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is why we lay great emphasis on the name Bukhari and the collection Bukhari. Bukhari is a very technical book. Out of all of the collections of hadith, in fact, out of all of the books, are, books studied in these seven years, whether it's tafsir or fiqh or Arabic or any or any other branch and science of Islamic learning, without exception, without a rival, the most complicated book is Sahih al-Bukhari. It truly is. And this is why, after the Holy Qur'an, no other book in Islam has received so much attention in terms of commentaries, notes, editing, analysis and study. Sahih al-Bukhari. It's a very complex book. So there are two ways of approaching it. One is when we are studying the final hadith, we could just catch a glimpse of some of what the students are taught in that traditional manner with all the detailed, technical, complex discussions of theology because the final book is actually Kitab al-Tawheed. It's a book on metaphysics. It's a book that covers aspects of philosophy, metaphysics, theology, dialectics. And it covers heretical groups of the past, etc. So it's a very technical discussion. We could indulge in that, but... That, and we would only catch a glimpse of what the students are normally taught. But that's, this isn't the occasion for that. However, there's a lot for us to learn, even as non-ulama, as non-students, from the final hadith and its reading today. One is, Bukhari began, began his book, his Sahih, with one famous hadith. And he ends it with another famous hadith. And in between the first hadith and the final hadith, there are approximately 7,400 hadith, approximately, depending on the numbering, how you actually number the hadith. Yes, there are repetitions. So a third of the book is original, and two-thirds of it is repetition, approximately. So, or just over a third, so 2,700, 800 hadith approximately are original. The remainder of the 7,500 are repetitions of those 2,700 hadith. So all of these hadith in between the 7,500 approximately cover many aspects of life. They do. Just like the Holy Qur'an, they will cover history, history of the former nations, history of the prophets, all in the words of Rasulullah himself. They will cover aspects of living, laws. They will cover ibadat, acts of worship, salah, zakah, hajj, fasting, Ramadan. They'll cover the virtues and the merits of senior people from amongst the companions. And these are just some examples. So they cover every aspect of life and learning. So much so that they even cover in great detail issues related to social aspects, marital law, 
marriage, divorce, children, all of these things, similar to the Holy Qur'an. However, when we reach the end of the book, there is a lesson. Just as there was a lesson right at the beginning, and there's a lesson for us to take away right at the end. And before I elaborate on some of these lessons from Sahih al-Bukhari itself, we only need to look at the Holy Qur'an in a way with approximation and roughly. Bukhari follows the example of the Holy Qur'an. When we read the Holy Qur'an, and if we try to understand it, the Qur'an covers many detailed topics. So you could be reading about the history of the former prophets, السلام, and their respective nations. The next minute you could be reading about laws of trading. The next minute you could be reading about laws of inheritance, laws of marriage, of divorce, of trade, of lending, of borrowing. You could be reading about salah, virtues. You could be reading about aspects of the Prophet ﷺ's life and the events that took place in Mecca and Medina. 14 centuries ago. You could be reading about Jannah, Jahannam, the Akhirah. The Quran covers so much. And one of our greatest weaknesses is that we are very selective. So we love to remember and focus only on those verses of the Holy Quran that appeal to us or suit us. Whereas Allah says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا ادْخُلُوا فِي السِّلْمِ كَافَّةِ وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا خُطُوَاتِ الشَّيْطَانِ إِنَّهُ لَكُمْ عَدُوٌ مُّبِينٌ O believers, enter into Islam collectively and do not follow in the footsteps of shaytan. Verily, he is your clear enemy. And what's one of the aspects of following in the footsteps of shaitan? It is not to embrace religion as a whole. It's not to enter into Islam completely, but rather selectively. In another verse, Allah addresses the people of the book who were in Medina, who lived alongside Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and just to give you a quick background, without going into too much, too much detail, what they would do is that they would engage in behaviour which appeared to be rather odd. So, when their fellow, when their allies, their fellows, their friends and colleagues would ask them, that, why are you doing this? And why are you doing that? Why don't you do this? Why do you do that? So their reply would be, we don't do this because Allah has forbidden us. Because they were people of the scripture. We don't do this because Allah has forbidden us. We do this because Allah has commanded us. But, it was true, Allah had told them, don't do this. Allah had also told them, do this. So they would do A, they would do B, but they'd ignore C and D and E. Then they'd act on F, then they'd forget G. Not forget, but overlook and ignore G. And so on. So Allah told them to do a hundred things. Allah told them not to do a hundred things. Out of these 200 commandments, a hundred of them prescriptions, a hundred of them prohibitions, what would they do? They'd act on a few here and a few there and ignore the rest. They believed in them. They never denied that Allah has told us to do this or told us not to do this. They never ever denied any of the laws of Allah. So when they were questioned, they wouldn't deny them. Yes, it's in our scripture. It's in our commandments. It's part of our teaching. It is part of our religion. But they failed to act on it. So Allah 
reprimands them, Allah scolds them. And when he does so, listen to his wording. Allah doesn't say, why do you act on part of the book and fail to act on the rest? Rather, Allah says to them, What? Do you believe in part of the book and you actually disbelieve in the rest? Now, there's an apparent mismatch. They never ever disbelieved in any part of the book. They believed in the whole book. And they would attest to this. They would declare it. They would pronounce it. They would read it, hymn it, recite it. They would rehearse it. But they wouldn't act on everything. So they read and study the book from cover to cover. Teach it, preach it, rehearse it, memorize it, relate it, recite it, hymn it. But they wouldn't act on the book in its entirety, only selectively. So Allah doesn't reprimand them or scold them by saying that, why do you act on part of the book and not act on the rest? Rather, Allah says to them, What do you believe in part of the book and disbelieve in the rest? So, there's a great lesson for us in that. That Allah himself is equating their failure to act on part of the kitab as disbelief in the kitab. And there's a lesson for us in that. That if we are selective in our choice of verses that we adhere to, that appeal to us, that we act on, then there's a danger. Of course, no one says, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So as I was saying, there's a danger that although we may profess belief in the whole of the kitab, just as the people of the book would do, if we are selective and restricted, in what we act on, then although no one says that we become disbelievers, we have to be mindful of the words of Allah to the people of the book when he told them, what do you believe in part of the book and disbelieve in the rest? So I was saying that we are very selective. So we remember aspects of the Holy Quran that suit us. The same with the Hadith. Parents know all the Hadith about rights of parents. Wives know a hadith about the rights of wives. Husbands know a hadith about the rights of the husband. We can't be selective. And when it comes to the Holy Quran, the Quran teaches as much. But the important thing is that what's the ultimate goal? What's the journey end? What's the actual destination? Allah tells us our destiny, our destination, our purpose, our direction in the final verse of the Holy Quran that was revealed. And that verse is at the end of Surah Al-Baqarah. And this verse is remarkable because you've got two verses that are both unique. One come both together. Two consecutive verses. They are very unique. And I'll mention the second one first. The second verse is, It's the longest verse of the Qur'an. It's longer than many of the surahs of the final 30th part. This one verse is actually longer than a number of surahs. It's the longest verse. But what's the longest verse of the Qur'an about? Remarkably, it's not about any of the former nations. It's not about any of the prophets, السلام, It's not even about salah, zakah, hajj, fasting, or the acts of ibadat. It's not even about jannah, jahannam. It's not even about the akhirah. The longest verse of the Qur'an speaks about making receipts whilst lending and borrowing to ensure that there is no misunderstanding. The longest verse of the Qur'an deals with trade and the ethics and etiquettes of trade, of buying, of selling, of finance. So it's unique in the sense that it's the longest verse of the Qur'an. But it deals with wealth. And the verse immediately before it is also unique. 
واتقوا يوما ترجعون فيه إلى الله ثم توفى كل نفس ما كسبت وهم لا يظلمون and fear a day in which you shall all be returned to Allah then each soul shall be requited and repaid in full for whatever it has earned now we hear that message often why is this verse unique it's unique because it's actually the final verse to be ever revealed to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. According to some narrations, it was revealed only nine days before he left this world. We often hear that the final verse was, اليوم أكملت لكم دينكم وأتممت عليكم نعمتي ورضيت لكم الإسلام دينا That this day I have completed your religion for you. And I have completed my favor on you and I am content with Islam as a religion for you. We often hear that, that that was a final verse. It is, but it's only the final verse in that it brought to an end the laws of Islam. The do's and don'ts. And it was revealed in the final hajj of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But approximately two months later, two and a half months later, this verse was revealed. And this was the final verse of the Qur'an. So, the journey of the Qur'an begins when the Prophet ﷺ was 40 years of age and he received the first verses. The Qur'an was revealed gradually over 23 years and it covers so much history, the akhirah, the afterlife, the previous lives. Laws, do's, don'ts, ahkam, marriage, divorce, inheritance, wealth, ibadat. But what is the final message of Allah after 23 years of the revelation of the Qur'an? The final message a few days before, the carrier and the bearer and the conveyor of that message, our beloved Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa departs from this world. What is the final and farewell message? That final and farewell message is that all of this leads to one thing, which is fear a day in which you shall all be returned to Allah. Then every soul shall be requited in full for what it has earned. This is what it leads to. And this is similar to what Imam Bukhari is doing. And before I explain that, let me share something else with you. Many, many people who are on their deathbed, in their final moments, in their final hours, and they still have the strength to speak. It's been related by many people that they say various things because their life is coming to an end. They know, the waiters on know, their friends and family and loved ones know that we are about to depart. I am leaving. And we often hear that some of the things they say are as follows. And there's one word that's repeated a lot. The word nothing. People on their deathbed say this. What do they say? They say, in all languages, they say things like, it's all come to nothing. It means nothing. We got nothing. The end result is nothing. It was all for nothing. So the word nothing is repeated because indeed that's what happens. You could have all the wealth in the world when a person is about to depart from the dunya, he or she will genuinely and very acutely feel this, that it's all come to nothing. It means nothing. So similar to that verse of the, well, that verse of the Quran tells us that even if you follow the laws of Islam in your marriage and in your divorce, 
in your household, in your social life, in your private life, in your public life, in your ibadat, ultimately, what's the end result? The end result is you are about to leave the world and you are about to fear, stand before Allah and therefore face accountability. Fear a day in which you shall all be returned to Allah. Then, what, what, what do the words say? And these are the final words of the Holy Qur'an. Then every soul shall be repaid, requited in full, for whatever it has earned and acquired. And no one shall suffer any loss or injustice in the least. Which means, we will be held accountable by Allah. There will be justice. They will not suffer any injustice. And every soul shall be repaid in full and accurately and precisely, no less, no more, for whatever it has acquired and earned. Now, let's go back to Bukhari. Bukhari begins his kitab with that famous hadith about hijrah. Sincerity of intention. That deeds are only by intention. And without going into detail, suffice to say that the first hadith about sincerity of intention has got nothing to do with the chapter heading or the book right at the beginning of Sahih al-Bukhari. Rather, Bukhari has introduced this hadith as an introduction, as a reminder to himself, to the listeners, to the students, to teachers, to the ulama, to anyone reading. That before you embark on this journey of studying hadith, of reading the book and his collection of, Bukha, his collection of Sahih hadith, be mindful of your intention. Be sincere, remain sincere. So that's a reminder. So he begins his kitab with sincerity of intention. And then he ends it with this final and famous hadith, which is that the Prophet ﷺ said, كَلِمَتَانِ حَبِيبَتَانِ إِلَى الرَّحْمَانِ خَفِيفَتَانِ عَلَى اللِّسَانِ ثَقِيلَتَانِ فِي الْمِيزَانِ سُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ وَبِحَمْدِهِ سُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ الْعَظِيمِ Which many people know now by heart. Alhamdulillah. And mashallah. So the Prophet ﷺ said there are two words which are beloved to the gracious one. Light on the tongue, heavy in the scale. And those two words are, those two sentences are, Subhanallah bihamdihi, Subhanallah al-Azim. Now, of course, this hadith has a lot to do with the dhikr of Allah, and the tasbih of Allah, and the praising, and the hymning of the glory of Allah, of course. But if you look at the chapter heading, it's not just about tasbih, and dhikr, and hamd. It's about... That these two sentences are heavy in the scales, i.e. the scales of justice and accountability in the hereafter. And you can only glean this if you look at the final chapter. So what's the final chapter? What is it about? Chapter of the word of Allah. Or the words of Allah. And then he quotes a verse of Surah Al-Anbiya. And what's that verse? وَنَضَعُ الْمَوَازِينَ الْقِسْطَ لِيَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ So it's a reference. وَنَضَعُ الْمَوَازِينَ الْقِسْطَ But the full verse is لِيَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ فَلَا تُظْلَمْ نَفْسٌ شَيْئًا وَإِنْ كَانَ مِثْقَالَ حَبَّةٍ مِّنْ خَرْدَلٍ أَتَيْنَا بِهَا وَكَفَى بِنَا حَاسِبِينَ Allah says, and this is the meaning, this is the final chapter of the book, chapter of the words of Allah, and we shall establish the scales of justice on the day of resurrection. So no soul shall suffer any injustice in the least. And even if it is something to the weight of a mustard seed, we shall produce it. And we are sufficient as accountants. We are sufficient as auditors. What does that verse speak of? Accountability. 
similar to that final verse of the Holy Quran, and fear a day in which you shall all be returned to Allah, and then each soul shall be requited and repaid in full for all that it has earned. Bukhari, in a way, following the Quran, reminds us right at the end of his book. Similar to the Quran, Bukhari's collection covers everything. You will find ibadah, salah, siyam, zakah, hajj, Ramadan, virtues, merits, encouragement, exhortation, discouragement, warnings. You will find history, you will find seerah, you will find tafsir, you will find everything. But what does it all lead to? What's the, what's the whole purpose? Ultimately, the purpose is accountability, justice, facing Allah. That's the end goal. That's the end journey. That's where we are all headed. Regardless of what's covered in between. One of our mistakes is we think that Islam is just about adopting a different costume, painting ourselves in a different colour, shifting and adjust, adjusting a few things here and there, and it's all good. A good example is halal meat. What's the purpose of halal meat? Here you have an animal. If you don't slaughter the animal, if you slaughter the animal in exactly the same way, where you don't say Bismillah, you don't take the name of Allah, and you have no intention of slaughtering it in the name of Allah, you could do it in the same way. It's not halal. You take the same a similar animal, slaughter it, take the name of Allah, make the intention, say Bismillah, Allahu Akbar. The method of slaughter is the same. But here you've made the niyyah and you pronounce the words. All of a sudden that same animal slaughtered in the same way becomes halal. So we think that, okay, this is haram, this is halal. How is this halal? Because we've taken the name of Allah in it. Right, now eat it. In gluttony. With indulgence. And that's it. Don't eat this, but eat this. And that's it. So all we've done is avoided one type of meat and consumed the same meat with a slight change in the technicality. But that's only the letter. What about the spirit? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the messengers alayhim the prophets of Allah, Ya ayyuhar rusul kulu min al-tayyibati wa'amalu saliha. O messengers, eat of the pure things and do good. So the spirit of halal is, you eat halal with the intention, with the niyyah, and in such a way that that consumption of pure leads you to pure deeds. And those pure deeds create purity in you. It's not just about switching one type of meat with another. Same with Islamic finance. If our understanding is, here's a product. It's haram because of riba. Here's another product. All we need to do is switch the wording fudge it slightly, adjust the uh, technical terms. And once you've made a slight technical adjustment, all of a sudden, the same thing to all intents and purposes with a change of name and a change of language and a technical adjustment suddenly becomes halal. It does. I'm not denying that. It does become halal. However, that's not the goal. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to adopt and to use those monetary items, to engage in those monetary practices in a pure, meaningful way with the correct intention, with the correct outlook, with the correct spirit, 
The usage of, of money in that pure manner should lead to pure deeds. Pure deeds should lead to purity. And I've just given two examples of halal meat or halal money. The same thing goes for everything. Islam isn't just about we do exactly the same but in a different way. That's not the purpose. So when it comes to marriages, our marriages are no different to other marriages. Except the technicality. Our families are no different to other families except the technicality. Except the name. That is not the purpose of any of the teachings of Islam. Every single thing should and must lead you to the end goal, which is taqwa. And one of the meanings of taqwa, in fact, the comprehensive meaning of taqwa is consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Awareness, the fear of the accountability of Allah. That's how we should live our lives. That's what we should be heading for. And this is what Bukhari reminds us too. That yes, he begins the book with sincerity of intention. And then there is so much in between. What is the purpose of all of those things? What is the goal? The goal is the very same end as the end of the Qur'an. Which is a return to Allah. The awareness and consciousness of the day of resurrection. Of accountability. Standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what matters. And all else, as many people say at the end of their lives, it all comes to nothing. It was all for nothing. All that matters is what we take with us to the akhirah. I said earlier that we can even take an example from the life of Imam Bukhari himself. And this would be of interest to the students. Look, Imam Bukhari is a perfect example. He's just one of many. But since we are commemorating the completion of his kitab, let's just look at his life as an example. Bukhari was wealthy. But he also fell into poverty. So he was poor at the beginning. He became a trader. He was quite wealthy. But then he also lost his wealth and gained his wealth. And he suffered. Money comes and goes. Money comes and goes. There was a time when people used to rain money on Bukhari. And that's not a metaphorical term. It's not an allegory. Literally, they would take gold sovereigns and silver, pure silver dirhams and gold sovereign dinars. And they used to shower them on him. Like people throw petals and rain petals on a celebrity. And these days people may rain notes. In those days when people would receive him in different cities, they would actually rain gold sovereigns and silver dirhams on him. That's how much wealth he had. Bukhari was an archer, an expert archer. His students say when sometimes, in our whole life, we only saw him miss the mark once or twice. He was a brilliant archer. So once he was practicing archery in some estate, and the arrow missed the target, and it strayed to the side and embedded itself in the wooden post of a wooden bridge. A very small wooden bridge over a stream or something, and it embedded the arrow embedded itself in the wooden bridge, in the post. So either it was a private estate or it was uh, under the governance of a certain governor. Whatever the case may have been, Bukhari sent a message to the uh, to the responsible person of that region, whether it was his private estate or uh, he was a governor. But he sent. A message to him and the message sent with the messenger was that Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari that was his name Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari his father was Ismail and again Bukhari had an older brother called Muhammad sorry Ahmed so the older brother was called Ahmed Imam Bukhari was called Muhammad when they were both young and their father Ismail who was a student of Imam Malik rahmatullahi alayhi, he was on his deathbed and ulama came to see him. And the father, Imam Ismail, actually said to the 
guests, and these ulama narrate this. He said, all my wealth which I have left for these two sons of mine, there is not a single dirham, a dirham, approximately a pound, give and take, well, it used to be till before last week. <clears throat> but let's say a pound. <clears throat> so he said, in my entire wealth that I have left for these two sons of mine, there is not a single dirham which is doubtful, let alone haram. Which is even doubtful. Pure wealth creates pure souls, like that. Purity begets purity. Imagine, he said, there is not a single dirham of doubtful provenance, let alone haram, in my entire wealth. Bukhari inherited wealth, lost it, gained it, earned it, lost it. So going back to that story, when he sent the message, the message was Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari seeks to be halal, i.e. seeks to be forgiven for the trespass against your property because my arrow landed on your wooden post and embedded itself in it. So I want you to forgive me for that. So when the Amir received that message, he said, go back and tell Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari that what of my single wooden post of the bridge? What of it? All my lands and all my estates are for you. All I'm trying to say is that this was a respect he had. He had no need for wealth. People would shower money on him. But then, the very same people turned. Bukhari suffered poverty. In his days of studying, whilst he was still studying as a younger man, he says, once whilst in my searching and journeying for hadith, I survived for three days without any food. I was eating dry grass. That was Bukhari. This deen does not come without sacrifice. It's not spread without sacrifice. It's not gained without sacrifice. It's not maintained without sacrifice. Our ulama made great sacrifices. During their days of studying, his teacher and the famous other scholar of Islam, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he was Bukhari's senior. Imam Bukhari died in 256 Hijri. And Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he died 15 years earlier in 241 Hijri. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal was one of the greatest scholars of Islam. And in fact, his collection of hadith is the largest. The Musnad of Ahmad ibn Hanbal numbers approximately 27,000 hadith with the additions of his son Abdullah ibn Ahmad. But Imam Ahmad, when he was a student, do you know what he used to do in Makkah al-Mukarramah? He used to study in the evenings and in the heat of the day. How would he earn his living? He was a coolie. He used to walk the streets carrying luggage for people on his back. That was Ahmed ibn Hanbal in his earlier days. They made great sacrifices. So Bukhari made great sacrifices. Bukhari had wealth, but wealth came and went. It came and went. Bukhari had fame. Bukhari had fame. None of us, and this is something that specifically I address, that I address specifically to the students of knowledge and to the ulama and to myself primarily, Look, we're all human beings. It's natural for us to feel a pang of love for wealth, to feel a pang of envy when we see something that makes us, that reminds us that I haven't got that, but he has got that, she has got that, I haven't got that. We're human beings at the end of the day. Islam doesn't tell us if you have any of these thoughts or feelings, you're evil. No, that's natural. It's natural to feel A pang of envy, momentarily. It's natural to be attracted to wealth, momentarily. It's natural to become angry, momentarily. <coughs> what Islam teaches us, 
the sunnah of Rasulullah is that when these ill feelings and emotions arise, a Muslim remembers Allah, is responsible, gathers his thoughts, her thoughts, collects himself or herself, suppresses these ill feelings and replaces them with wisdom, awareness and consciousness and the remembrance of Allah. So you feel a pang of jealousy, what do you do? You suppress it. You replace it with good thoughts, with positive thoughts. In fact, you even make a dua for the person towards whom your envy is directed and you say, may Allah increase him even more. May Allah grant him even more. You know what that does? It brings about peace of mind, contentment, tranquility and relaxation. Otherwise, you just burn inside for no reason. All you do is kill yourself. It's, it's natural to feel the love of wealth. It is. Allah says, زُيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ حُبُّ الشَّهَوَاتِ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ وَالْبَنِينَ وَالْقَنَاطِيلِ الْمُقَنْطَرَةِ مِنَ الذَّهَبِ وَالْفِضَّةِ وَالْخَيْلِ الْمُسَوْمَةِ وَالْعَامِ وَالْحَرْثِ Till the end of the verse. That all of these things of the dunya are naturally beautified in the hearts of men. That's natural. So what happens when the love of these things rises in one's heart and in one's thoughts? What does a Muslim do? You fight it, you suppress it, you contest it, you remind yourself of the akhirah, you remind yourself that all of this comes to nothing. It's a need of the dunya, but it's not our goal, it's not our objective. So you overcome it. In, the similar, in a similar light, it's natural for students of knowledge and for ulama to momentarily think, oh, I'd love to be like that. Sit on the mimbar, give a speech, Everyone says, wah, wah, mashallah, alhamdulillah, look how clever he is, look how eloquent he is, where you are the center of attraction, you're on the stage. It's natural. One of the Abbasid emperors, he, and this is one of the, imagine, he's the Abbasid emperor of the Abbasid empire. The greatest empire on earth at the time, without rival. Even Charlemagne of Europe used to pay homage. Charlemagne the Great of Europe would pay homage to the Abbasid rulers and emperors. So the Abbasid emperor who lacked nothing, who had everything, wealth, gold, silver, opulence, homes, palaces, slaves, attendants, pure, uh, fertile lands, he wanted for nothing. He wanted for nothing. There was nothing that he lacked. What, what more could he have asked for? He had armies, gold, silver, treasures. But he had one, he lacked one treasure. He lacked one thing which was not in his treasure, which only the mullahs had. So the Abbasid emperor said, do you know what I really want? What I want to do is have a group of students seated around me. And they're all seated there with their pens and their papers. And then I say to them, حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ So courtiers being courtiers and sycophants, they said, Your Majesty, grant us leave, we will go and get pens and papers, and we will come and sit in front of you. And he said, Fools, not you lot, but students of Hadith. I want them to sit around me with their pens and their papers. And I say to them, حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ Funa related to us. He said, such and such person related to us. That such and such person related to us all the way to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then he even said, and one of them stops me and says, what did you just say? And then I repeat it and then he writes it. So he said, that's what I so even emperors who were laden with gold and silver, they envied the ulama. Because mullahs had what they did not have. The mullah had what his majesty didn't have. And his majesty envied that. So imagine, we, we envy his majesty. And I'm talking about the majesty 12 centuries ago. So we envy his majesty of the Abbasid Empire for his wealth. And he 
envy is the pauper of a mullah. So who should we be envying? So envy is a natural thing, and that indeed when it comes to ilm, even emperors have that desire that I wish I could be a teacher and they all sit around me and respect me and look up to me. Everybody wants to be an imam, a shaykh, an alim, lead the, stand on the musalla, lead, stand on the mimbar, give speeches. Wallahi, that's a weakness of the nafs. Because let me tell you, and this is addressed to the students of ilm and the ulama and to myself, even this, it all comes to nothing. It all comes to nothing. It amounts to nothing. It leads to nothing. We want fame? Who could have been more famous than Bukhari? Who could have been more famous than Bukhari? One of the ulama said, I went to Egypt. And in Egypt, I met 30 ulama, 30 great scholars. All 30 of those scholars said to me, our one desire in life is to see the face of Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari. They, they, they were desirous just to catch a glimpse of his face. That was Bukhari. People used to, he used to walk in the street. He never had a hair on his beard. He was 16, 17 years old. Not a hair on his beard. Sorry, not a hair on his beard, not a hair on his face. Ulama would chase after him, make him sit down in the middle of the street. Hundreds would gather in the middle of the road and he would be teaching them hadith. People chased him. People showered money on him. But in the end, because of one theological difference, which hair-splitting difference, which most people did not understand, do not understand. What happened? People turned against him. That's what fame is. Fame is nothing. And I say to the students of ilm, and to the ulama too, don't aspire to fame. Wallahi, even that comes to nothing. It doesn't mean anything. A famous celebrity, Madonna, she was asked, she's become famous. She was asked, what do you say of fame? And this is Madonna speaking. And she said, I wouldn't wish fame on my worst enemy's dog. Because the very same people who chase fame, acquire it, then flee from it. Because it's an intrusion of privacy. It overtakes a person's life. The, the peace, the happiness that a person seeks in fame is not there. Just like it's not in wealth. It's not in fame either. It truly isn't. So who could have been more famous than Imam Bukhari? What happened to him? I won't go into the details. The very same people who used to shower him with gold and silver chased him out of their cities until he went from one city to another. From He fled from Naysabur to Bukhara. He had to flee from his own city, north, Bayqand. From Bayqand, he went to Samarqand. Whilst he was travelling to Samarqand, he learned that the people of Samarqand split into two. Half of the city was saying, Dare Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari come to our city. The others were saying, we want him here. So Bukhari then said, I'll wait outside Samarqand. There was a village called Khartang, about 20 miles from Samarqand. His relatives lived there. So he went to wait in the village of Khartang. But given all of this, Bukhari was, wallahi, he was like a refugee fleeing from city to city in his old age, or in his late age. Uh, because at that time, he was how old? He was 62. He was born in 194, he died in 256, so he was 62 years old. So in his early 60s, he's fleeing from city to city as a refugee. Whereas when he was 17 years old, ulama used to chase him. Now, the awam were chasing him out. Imagine, ulama were dying to see him, ulama were chasing him. And there came a time when the non-ulama were chasing him out of their cities. In the end... He ended up in this village. It was the month of Ramadan. His student says, I was seated behind him. And after Isha Salah, in the month of Ramadan, I heard him making dua to Allah. Allahumma qaddaqat alayya al-ardu bima rahubat faqbidni ilayk. O Allah, the earth, despite its vastness, has become narrow and restricted for me. O Allah, claim me unto yourself. He prayed for death. Bukhari prayed for death because of the way people were treating him. And they were Muslims. He prayed for death. It was Ramadan, it was Bukhari. The end of the month came. 
It was the last day of Ramadan. Maghrib Salah. After Maghrib, the crescent was sighted for Eid. Eid was announced immediately after, a short while after Maghrib. News came as well, good news from Samarqand, that the people have agreed that you can come to Samarqand. Bukhari got ready. He got ready to leave for Samarqand, 20-mile journey. What happened? He fell ill. He was taken to his bed. And in that same night, he passed away. His dua was accepted. He died on Eid. Bukhari died on Eid. Next day, people came to his grave. And people would come. The very same people who opposed him would now come and weep at his grave. That's what fame is. Fame comes to nothing. Wealth comes to nothing. What matters in this journey of life is, as the first hadith of Bukhari states, sincerity of intention, be sincere, focused, pure in your motive on this journey. And all that matters after everything in the middle of the book, marriage, divorce, laws, inheritance, wealth, trading, business, all that matters is we shall establish the scales of justice on the day of resurrection and the deeds of men shall be weighed and even their words. And in this context, Bukhari brings a hadith, two sentences or two words that are most beloved to the gracious. Subhanallah bihamdi, subhanallah al-azim. They are light on the tongue. But what's the main focus in this hadith? It's not so much the tasbih and the hamd of Allah. What's the main focus? The words, thaqilatani fil mizan. These two words are heavy in the scales of Allah. The scales of justice. That's what the ending of the book is about. Justice in the akhirah, accountability, answering for our deeds, preparation for the life of the akhirah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant all of us tawfiq. May Allah make us sincere. May Allah enable us to live our lives as Muslims. May Allah enable us to adopt halal food, halal wealth in the correct spirit. So that halal consumption of food and the halal acquisition of wealth leads us to halal deeds, halal thoughts, leads us to purity within too. And all of that leads us to a good and noble departure from this dunya in such a state that Allah is pleased with us. So that in the akhirah, which is all that matters, our scales are heavy with good deeds. They are truly heavy with good deeds. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a tawfiq. Uh, symbolically, I'll just read the final chapter and hadith for the students, and inshallah we'll make a brief dua after that. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Babu qawlillah wa nada'u al-muwazin al-qist wa anna a'mala bani adam wa qawlahum yuzan wa qala mujahidun al-qistu masdur al-muqsit wa qala mujahidun al-qistasu al-adlu bil-rumiyah ويقال القسط مس القسط مصدر المقصد وأما القاصد فهو الجائر وبه قال حدثنا أحمد بن إشكاب قال حدثنا محمد بن فضيل عن عمارة بن القعقاء عن أبي زرعة عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه قال قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كلمتان حبيبتان إلى الرحمن خفيفتان على اللسان ثقيلتان في الميزان سبحان الله وبحمده سبحان الله العظيم Make dua Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant all of his tawfiq. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin Nabiyyin Ummi wa ala alihi wa sallim tislima. Allahumma laka alhamdu kama yinbaghi li jalali wajhik wa azimi sultanik. Rabbana zalamna anfusana wa illam taghfir lana wa tarhamna lanakunanna min al-khasirin. Rabbana atina fi dunya hasanatan wa fi al-akhirati hasanatan wa qina athab al-nar. Rabbana hablana min azwajina wa zurriyatina kurrta a'yunin wajanna lil muttaqina imama. Rabbana aghfir lana wa li ikhwanina al-lazina sabakuna bil-eeman. Wala taj'al fi qurubina ghil للذين آمنوا ربنا إنك رؤوف الرحيم ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب ربنا إننا سمعنا مناديا ينادي للإيمان أن آمنوا بربكم فآمنا ربنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا وكفر عنا سيئاتنا وتوفنا مع الأبرار ربنا وآتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخسنا يوم القيامة إنك لا تخلف الميعاد اللهم إنا عبيدك بنو عبيدك بنو إمائك نواصينا بيدك ماضي 
فينا حكمك عدل فينا قطاؤك نسألك اللهم بكل اسم هو لك سميت به نفسك أو أنزلته في كتابك أو علمته أحدا من خلقك أو استأثرت به في علم الغيب عندك أن تجعل القرآن العظيم ربيع قلوبنا ونور صدورنا وجلاء أحزاننا وذهاب همومنا اللهم إنا نسألك من خير ما سألك منه نبيك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر ما استعاذك منه نبيك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وأنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله وصل الله وسلم على النبي الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين